0: Chapter 10. chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. This is the very word of God. (coughs) Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart This is the word of God. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father, we come before you this morning. We ask that you would, by your spirit, open our ears and our hearts to receive your word. And that you would sanctify us by that word, renewing our minds that our lives might be transformed to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we heard in our call to worship this morning, the Advent season is a time of looking back and of looking forward. It is a time of looking back to to Jesus' first coming when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. But of course, it is also a time to look forward to his coming again when he will bring to fruition the redemption that he has once and for all accomplished through his life, death, and Resurrection. So it's a time to to look back and it is a time to look forward. And these verses before us this morning, we are called on to do exactly that. You'll notice the the structure of the paragraph. The the author says, Therefore, since we have, let us. He, He points us back to what has been accomplished for us, for what is now our possession in Christ. And then he points us forward to how we ought to live in the light of that redemption even as we wait for that day which we know is approaching. So in these verses, we are called to look back to that first Christmas, look back to to Jesus coming, the life that that baby lived on our behalf, the sacrifice that he made of himself once and for all, giving his life as the ransom for many. We're called to, to look back And then to look forward, knowing that the day is coming when he will come again. And in the light of what he has done, and in the light of what he is going to do, we are called on to live in the present. He gives us three exhortations. We are to draw near with a true heart. We are to hold fast to our confession of hope. And we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Three exhortations exhortations but we begin by noticing that these three exhortations are rooted in what has already been accomplished notice what he says since we have this is the way it always works in the new testament In the New Testament, it is always imperatives, rooted in indicatives. The the commands that we receive, the life that we are called to, is always rooted in what has been done, in what has been accomplished. We see this throughout Paul's letters as as he begins his letters reminding us of what has been accomplished so that he can then call us to live lives worthy of that calling, to to walk in the light of what we now know to be true in Christ. It's exactly what is going on here. He is calling us to, to live new lives in the light of the reality that he has been hammering on for the last few chapters, in light of this reality that we have a great high priest over the house of God. Notice how he puts it in verse 19. He says, brothers, we have confidence to enter The holy places. That is the ground of the Christian life. We have confidence to enter the holy places. Now throughout this letter, the author has used that plural, the holy places, to refer to the holy of holies in the Old Testament tabernacle. The, the most holy place, that, that room where only the high priest was allowed to enter, and him only once a year, and only with the blood of the, the freshly slain sacrifices. That holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was to be found, the, the Ark being the footstool of God's throne. It was the symbol of God's presence among his people. But not only did it symbolize God's presence among his people, it also symbolized, as the author told us earlier in this letter, that the way was not yet open into the presence. God had chosen a people for himself, and he had chosen to to dwell among them, but it was not yet safe for them to come into his presence, because their sin had not yet been dealt with. That's the the point that the author has been making again and again, that the the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were but shadows. They, They had the form of what was needed, but not the substance. The substance is found only in Christ. The lambs and the bulls and the goats that were slain in the Old Testament pointed to the coming lamb, the lamb of God, who would take away our sins. And now Jesus has, by the sacrifice of himself, opened the way for us into the Holy of Holies. We now have access to the very throne room of God. We come into the presence of the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. Even now we have gathered in his presence this morning. And we're so used to it, we sometimes don't realize how big a deal it is that we get to come into the very presence of the living God. Think of Moses' response at the burning bush when God told him that he was sending him to Pharaoh. Moses knew the risks involved with such an assignment, and he tried to beg off, tried to beg off multiple times, tried to come up with any number of excuses why it wasn't a good idea for him to go to Pharaoh. He was fearful of coming into the presence of a human king. Or think about Esther when Mordecai challenged her that for such a time as this have you been given this position? You need to go to Xerxes and you need to plead on behalf of your people. Remember her famous words If I perish, I perish. She knew how dangerous it was to go into the presence of a human king. But we have not come into the presence of a human king this morning. We have come into the presence of the living God. We have come into the presence of the one who the author of Hebrews calls a consuming fire. The one in whose presence we cannot stand apart from his grace. And so we need to wonder, we need to be in awe, we need to stand amazed in the best sense of the word, that we have been granted access, that we now have confidence to enter into the very presence of the living God. And notice that that confidence that we have is an objective confidence. He's he's not talking here about a subjective feeling. It's not just that we feel confident. Sometimes you feel confident when you ought not to be. I know certain students who are very confident entering exams, and after those exams, it proves that they shouldn't have been. We know what it is to to be confident when we, we have no grounds of confidence, and we know what it is to lack confidence when we ought to have assurance. Sometimes as as children, we fear greatly being found out by our parents. Because we're afraid that that what we have done will sever their relationship with us. And yet they assure us, no. While I am disappointed and while I must discipline, you are my child. And I love you. Sometimes we don't feel confident when we have confidence. Confidence. And so it is not a question of how you feel this morning. It is not a question of whether you feel confident entering into the, the presence of God. It is not a, a, a subjective question. The author is telling you whether you feel it or not. You objectively have confidence in Christ to come into the presence of God this morning. You have confidence to enter beyond the curtain. That's what he says, that he has opened a new and living way through the the curtain. The curtain there is is very clearly the the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the the tabernacle. That curtain beyond which only the high priest was allowed to enter and only once a year. He says we now have access to enter through that curtain. And notice he, he compares the curtain to Jesus' own flesh. He says, we have now access to a, a new and living way that he opened through the curtain that is through his flesh. Now at first, that's a, that's a strange comparison. What is, the, what is the comparison between Jesus' flesh and the, the curtain? The, the curtain is what kept us out of God's presence. And yet remember, it was also the doorway into God's presence. And the way was only opened when that curtain was torn. I think that's the comparison that the author wants us to see. That Jesus' flesh became the way into God's presence when it was torn, when it was rent asunder, when his body was broken and his flesh was poured out upon the cross. Jesus has opened a new and living way into the very presence of God. And so now we must, in the light of that, in light of of the work of our great high priest on behalf of the house of God, we must live differently. What the author is telling us, he says, because of what Christ has done for us, because we now have confidence to come into the presence of God, the first thing that we must do is that we must come. We must draw near And if you look at the way that the author has used that language throughout this letter, it is is clearly a drawing near in worship. Drawing near to to offer praise and thanksgiving to God for the great things that he has done. We are drawing near to God in worship. But, But notice how we are to worship. We are to worship with a true heart in full assurance. The language of a a true heart uh, represents that we are to come with a sincerity. James warns us against having a a double mind. People sometimes uh, believe that that refers to just the the doubts that we sometimes wrestle with as, as human beings. But I think it's more pernicious than that. Having a, a double mind is, is actually having a, a double mind where you, you think maybe you want God, but you're, you're hedging your bets and you think there's something else you might want too and you're not quite sure. He says, let us not come with a divided heart, but let us come sincerely into the presence of God. Let us come with a, a true heart, sincerely coming to, to bow before Him, to, to offer ourselves to Him as whole burnt offerings. It's the image that Paul uses for our worship in in Romans 12. Our, Our spiritual worship is to offer our bodies to Him as living sacrifices, as whole burnt offerings, without reservation, without qualification, without holding back. We don't offer to God one part of our lives. We don't submit to Him in one part. We don't say, well, this is for your glory, but the rest is for me. We come with undivided hearts in true sincerity, With true hearts. And we come with a full assurance. Again, not a a full assurance in ourselves. But a full assurance in him. A full trust that what he has done is sufficient to pave the way. That by his finished work upon the cross. Through his death and resurrection, we now have access. Become fully assured that what Jesus has done is for us. And is Enough. When we come this way, when we we come with a true heart, a a sincere heart, bowing before God without reservation, without qualification, fully confident in what Christ has done for us, Paul says that, or the author says, then we come with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, it's what is true. When we draw near with a heart, a sincere heart and when we draw near in full assurance of the faith then we draw near as those whose hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and whose bodies are washed with pure water the imagery is taken directly out of ezekiel chapter 36 it's what god says he will do for his people in the new covenant He will sprinkle them clean from an evil conscience. It's it's language that the author has been using throughout the letter. An evil conscience is a a conscience that is defiled by guilt. Guilt, real guilt. Not feelings of guilt, but the objective guilt of our sins. The guilt that separates us from God. the, The guilt that disqualifies us from coming into his presence. Sin makes us guilty. And we know it. We, we feel it. We are aware of it. And the promise of the gospel is that when we draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance, then our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our guilt is removed. It's just a, simply another way of, of talking about our justification. That we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Think about it. As we gather here this morning, we gather as those whose hearts have been sprinkled clean. The record of debt that stood against you has been nailed to the cross. The the record that the, the accuser uses as his weapon against you to entangle you, to ensnare you, it has been stolen out of his hands. He has been disarmed, Paul says. Let him accuse. You can appeal to Christ. All that you say is true. Yes, I am a sinner. I am a great sinner. I am the foremost of sinners. But I am covered in the blood. And therefore my guilt has been removed as far as the east is from the west. This is the promise. When we come, when we draw near to God... With a true heart and a full assurance, our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. But not only this, not only is our guilt removed, notice what else he says. He says, our bodies are washed with pure water. Again, the image is taken from Ezekiel 36. And there in Ezekiel 36, we see clearly what he is talking about. If, if our hearts have been sprinkled clean, our, our bodies now represent the the tangible things that our our hearts do, the the things that we do, our works. And he says we have been sprinkled, and those who have been washed, according to Ezekiel, are those who now walk in obedience to God's commands. It's It's a picture of our sanctification. Not only has our guilt been removed, not only has the guilt of our sin been taken away, but the pollution, the perversion of sin is being washed away. We have been set free from the sins that so easily entangle to run with endurance the race that has been marked out for us. We are being sanctified. The author made that clear earlier in the chapter. This is an ongoing process, but it is a process that has been definitively begun. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Our bodies have been washed with pure water as we draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance. So let us be people who draw near. Let us be people who come to worship. God doesn't call us to worship because he is vain or insecure. He he doesn't need us to build up his ego. Our God is a self-giving God. And he gives us the commands, he gives us because he loves us and he calls us to enter into his delight. He calls us to worship because he knows in worship we will find life. You see, you were created for worship and you cannot but worship. You will worship something and what you worship, you will serve. What you worship will shape your life. Your life will will be shaped around that to which you ascribe ultimate value. And God knows that when we ascribe ultimate value to anything but himself, that shaping is a deforming. That shaping is a misshaping. That shaping is a a bending out of joint. But when we worship the one true and living God, when we ascribe to him the glory due his name, we are shaped into the very picture of Christ. Into the very picture of human wholeness. Into the very picture of human health. It is as true worshipers of the one true God that we find true health. So he calls us to worship that we might know life and might know it abundantly. But it's not just worship that we are called to. He also calls us to hold fast to the confession of our hope. We're to Draw near and worship, and we are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Now, when we think of confession, you see it in the bulletin, we, we normally think of the confession of our faith. Because to, to confess something is to say that this is true, that this I believe. And so we think of confessing the faith. The, the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. We, we think of, of adding our assent to, to the truths that have been revealed to the church. But, but here, the author speaks not of the confession of the faith, but of the confession of our hope. Now, obviously, the two are not unrelated in just the next chapter, he is going to define faith as the assurance of things hoped for. Faith and, and hope are intimately bound together, but it, I think it is significant that, that he speaks at the confession of our hope, because there is this difference between faith and hope. Faith is the, the assurance that God will do what he has said he will do. It is taking God at his word. It is, it is believing what he has said. But hope is delighting in what he has said. Hope is in remembering and regarding what he has promised to do as our ultimate blessing. It is seeing what God has said he will do as good and beautiful. And so he, is, he says, hold to the confession of your hope. It's not just enough to believe that God will do what he says he's going to do. It is, we must also believe that what he has promised to do is glorious. Is good, is beautiful, is our ultimate blessing. And so we confess our hope, we, we confess our longing for God to bring to completion the good work that He has done. I was having a conversation with somebody this past week, and as we were uh, talking, he, he mentioned some of his history. And it was a, a difficult history. But as he talked about some of the things that he had done and some of the ways that he had spent his life, things of which he was now ashamed, he said, but isn't it glorious that God makes us new? He talked about the the good news of sanctification, the good news that he would not always struggle with his sin, the good news that one day he would be set free from the temptations with which he still daily struggles. He was hoping in the promise of holiness. He was longing for it. It's the same longing that we should have. It's the same longing that we should have not only for our personal holiness, but but for the coming of God's kingdom across the globe. When when Jesus speaks of hunger and thirsting for righteousness, he's not just talking about our personal righteousness. He's he's talking about the establishment of the the righteousness of God's kingdom, the, the kingdom that will rest upon the soldiers of that little baby born in Bethlehem. We hold out hope that God will do all that he has promised to do. And we long for the day when that work will be complete. When his work will be realized in full. Because it is that hope. It is, it is that hope for what God has promised to do that sustains us in the present. It is that realization that what is coming is glorious beyond even our imagining that sets us free to rejoice even in our sufferings in the present because we know that those sufferings are instruments in our Father's hands as he works towards a good that is beyond our imagining. And so we must hold fast to our hope, not only our belief that God will do what he has said he will do, but our longing for him to do it quickly. So we must hold fast to our confession of hope, but we also must stir one another up in the meantime to love and good works. It's it's fundamentally just a a call to encourage one another, to be stirring up one another, to be provoking one another. Whatever your translation says, we are to be motivating one another to to a new life, a life of love and good works. And think about what that means. It it means that the, the life of The life that flows out of worship and hope is a life of love and good works. If you have this hope, John says, you will purify yourself. If you have this hope, you will walk in new obedience. If you are longing for the day when you will be set free from sin then even today you will seek to be set free from sin as much as possible. You will seek to no longer give yourself to the passions of your former ignorance, but to to walk in the light. The light that calls you to give your life away for the sake of the other, because you know in losing your life you will find it. This is what we are called to. This life of love and good works, But, but notice that The author isn't just simply telling us that that the life that that flows out of worship and hope is a life of love and good works. He is is telling us that we can't do it on our own. He is telling us that if we are to live that life, we need to be in community. We need to be sharing our lives with one another so that we can be encouraging one another, so that we can be supporting one another, so that we can be bearing with one another. Yes, the life that flows out of hope is a life of love and good works, but that is a, a life that can uh, flourish only in community. And that's why we must seek to, to live in community. That's why the author says, do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. If we are to live this life, this life of hope, then we must share our lives with one another. Of course, that means gathering on Sunday morning for worship. It means not neglecting this time where we we meet together. It means making this a priority, structuring your week about being here. It is vital that you gather for, for worship with God's people. But do not think that this gathering is all that is implied in the not neglecting to meet together. There is more to sharing your life than an hour or two on Sunday morning. The author is calling us to share our lives in intimate ways. Not for an hour or two on Sunday morning, but every day. It's what we try to do through, throughout the week here at, at Trinity. We, we offer many opportunities to, to gather. We have small groups on, on Sunday night. We have uh, uh, groups that meet here at the church on, on Wednesday. We have other groups that, that meet throughout the week. And let me let you in on a little secret. You don't need a formal group of the church in order to meet together. I know that you guys can gather together. You have each other into your homes. You you meet for for lunch throughout the week. You share your lives with one another. And it is vital that you do so. It is vital that, that you are known and that you know. Because it is only in such shared living that you are able to truly provoke one another to love and good works. And so if you have not been sharing your life then the author is calling you to make that a priority in the coming year. Make it a priority to share your life with one another, that you might be encouraged and that you might be an encouragement. You see, Paul tells us that every member of the church is both needy and needed. He is in need. He he needs the encouragement of his brothers and sisters, but they also need his encouragement. You need to be encouraged and you need to be an encourager that we might live lives worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ. So looking back at what Jesus has done for us, recognizing the the glory of the work of our great high priest, the author gives us these three intertwined commands. Worship brings us into the very presence of God to behold his glory. As we see his beauty, Our hope is kindled because we know the goodness of what he is bringing. And as we hope for that day, we are motivated to walk in love and good works. But of course, walking in love and good works gives us a foretaste of the the health of the age to come, which then causes us to celebrate all the more the, the fact that he has opened a way for us. And so it leads us back into worship, which of course then rekindles our hope. And you see the cycle continue. These are intertwined commands, as as hope fuels worship, which fuels love, which fuels hope. We must give ourselves to these things as we wait for that day. Notice what he says Do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's easy to be confused by such statements in the New Testament. Some even draw the conclusion that, well, the authors must have been wrong. They thought, that, they thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime, and he didn't. Simple mistake. We don't believe that the authors of Scripture writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit make mistakes. And so what does it mean when he says, as you see the day drawing near? As I said, it's familiar language. We, we've actually seen it earlier. Remember what the author said about Jesus, that Jesus was born, that, that first Christmas happened when? In the last days. Jesus' coming was the decisive turning point of history. His birth was the dawning of the age to come. It was the beginning of the end. And ever since he came, we have been living in the last days. And the only thing that that keeps those days from coming to a conclusion is the great patience of our Heavenly Father. Peter says Jesus is not slow in returning, as some count slowness. He is not reluctant or, or forgetful of his promises. But rather, he is patient. For today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when you can repent and turn to him and receive life. And so he delights to extend these last days that all might be saved, that all might hear the gospel and come to faith in him, for he does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. But know this, there is a day that is coming, and it is nearer now than it was then. We don't know when it will be, And those who think they know are wrong. Jesus himself said, we we simply don't know. He will come like a thief in the night, unexpected. But he will come. Maybe today, maybe a millennia from now. I don't know. But let us live today like those who see that day drawing near like those who know with full assurance that that day is coming. Let us live today as if today is the day that we will hear his voice. Let that be our resolution in the coming new year. Let our resolution be that we will live today like those who see the day drawing near. Because if we see that day drawing near, if we know the day is coming, then this day we will draw near in worship. We will hold fast to hope, and we will spur one another on to love and good works, even as we share our lives with one another. Because these are the things that the disciples of Jesus do. These are the things that those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb have been set free for. And because we have been set free for such a life, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? And then Let us believe it together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the call to this new way of living, a life marked by worship and hope and good deeds. Father, we pray that by the power of your word, through the ministry of your spirit, you would be equipping us to live such lives even today and in the coming year. To the praise of your glory and to the blessing of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.